Thank you all. Well, good morning again. Our scripture today comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, beginning in the first verse. We're going to go to um, learn about the temptations, but this has nothing to do with the Motown group by the same name. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He'll command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. For you are truly our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Tuesday morning, we left the King Solomon Hotel that sits high upon a hill overlooking the old city of Jerusalem, and we headed east toward the Dead Sea. We took the road to Jericho, the setting for Jesus' famous story about the Good Samaritan. The land changes rather dramatically over this hilly two-hour drive. Earlier in the week, we'd been at the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus grew up and did so much of his ministry. That area is green and lush and full of fruit trees. It is beautiful. I don't recall ever being in a place before where you could grow apples and oranges at the same time at the same place. But you can do that there. And bananas and grapes and mangoes and cherries. That's the Sea of Galilee. It is not at all like the area where we were going on this day around the Dead Sea. The area around the the Dead Sea is the driest in Israel and among the driest places on earth. It averages 42 millimeters of rain per year, or about an inch and a half, all year. Our driver had been taking groups there every other week for 19 years. He had never seen it rain at the Dead Sea. But it did while we were there. (laughs) I guess we were just special. All 42 millimeters, I promise. This is the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Still intact inside those jars after 2,000 years because there's so little humidity in this place. I'm talking dry and stark. Very few trees or shrubs. There's no grasses. They're just high mountains and steep cliffs, and then it's flat. We saw Bedouins who graze sheep and goats alongside the road on the way to the Dead Sea, but there's none of that once you get to the desert. I suppose maybe it was a better place to settle down 4,000 years ago. 
and maybe just the effects of climate change have taken its toll, but the evidence from the peoples who've lived there for thousands of years suggests it's always been a tough place to live. And the people who do live there have done so because, honestly, they're trying desperately to get away from other people. I don't mean to be irreverent, but if God had taken me to the top of Mount Nebo and showed me this area of the country like he did Moses and said, here it is, here's what you've been searching for after 40 years of wandering in the desert, I might have thought, seriously? Are you kidding? No wonder Moses sent spies into the land to see if things actually grew there. That's probably a terrible thing to say, but I want you to understand just how inhospitable this place is. Because this is exactly where Jesus spent six weeks in the wilderness. He'd just been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, over at the River Jordan. And then he's led by the Spirit to go into this place and fast and pray for 40 days. The average high in the summertime here is 104. The average high. And you can't drink from the Dead Sea. It's 10 times saltier than the ocean. Now, sure, there's water down at the Jordan River, and there's an oasis at Jericho, but it's not like Jesus can just hop on a bus and run over there. You get the picture. It's mostly miles and miles and miles of baking desert hemmed in by two mountain ranges. The story of Jesus' temptation after 40 days in this place is always one of the lectionary texts for the first Sunday of Lent because it provides for us the pattern for Lent. Jesus went to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil, according to Matthew. Lent also lasts 40 days and 40 nights, except for Sundays, which is important for us to recognize. Okay, It's instructive to know why Sundays are supposed to be accepted from the season of self-denial and sacrifice during Lent. Lent is this time of fasting and penitence and self-examination. But Sunday, Sunday is always a festival day. Because on Sunday, we celebrate Christ's resurrection. He was resurrected on a Sunday. So every Sunday is a little Easter. The interruption of fasting and introspection is a way of reminding us what is essential about our faith. At the very centerpiece of Christianity is God's victory in Jesus Christ through the resurrection. Now, one of the temptations of Lent is to take ourselves and our sins too seriously. Like the man who was flying his airplane. All of a sudden, the airplane went into a tailspin. He dropped several thousand feet before he could pull it out. And later, somebody asked him, what in the world were you thinking while all that was going on? And he said, all my sins flashed before my eyes. And I found it so interesting, I wanted to go back up and do it again. Well, for those who enjoy wallowing in their sins, Lent can be a wonderful opportunity to experience them all over again. But come Sunday... We're to put our introspection into perspective. All Christian introspection should be done in light of the resurrection, which is to say that what we have done and what we confess is done in light of what God has already done for us. I'm not saying, you know, like my neighbor used to say growing up, I can do whatever I want on Saturday night as long as I come to church on Sunday and confess my sins. That's cheap grace. But we do need to remember that Christ has already died for our sins and been raised again. That's the good news. 
The good news is that because of the resurrection, we can put our past behind us. And we can get on living the life that God has planned for us. That's what Sundays are for. Sundays are reminders of the victory that we've been given through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're excluded from the season of Lent to remind us that as we confess our sins, we know they're already forgiven. The story of the temptations come to us in the fourth chapter of Matthew. Just after Jesus' baptism, right as he's starting his public ministry, his baptism served as this call for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God. You'll remember the story. He hears this voice from heaven that says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, immediately Jesus is tested by the devil to see if he is the Son of God. See if he has what it takes to be the Messiah which means the temptations for Jesus serve as kind of a six-week boot camp before he begins his public ministry. Incidentally, Lent was originally established for new Christians, those who experience a call themselves. They were to spend 40 days and 40 nights preparing for their baptisms. And if at the end of that time they still wanted to follow Jesus, then on Easter morning they'd be baptized as the sun was rising in the east signaling a new day and inaugurating a new era because of the resurrection. I'm sure it had powerful significance for these new Christians to have prepared for their vocation the same way that Jesus prepared for his. But later, the church used the 40 days as a time of renewal for those who were already Christian because after a certain time in the Roman Empire and the successive empires, pretty much everyone was a Christian and They were baptized as babies. So the time of Lent was used as a time of renewal to recommit ourselves to the Christian life, examining our lives in light of what Jesus has done. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks. We're going to go on this journey with Jesus, and we'll look at the events of his life, and we'll reflect on how they'll affect our own. We begin this morning, again, with the temptation scene. Now, I've got to admit I got a little trouble with this. The problem, I think, is pretty easily explained. You see, I'm not the Messiah, although there are times when I, you know, suspect I try to be. But in my more sensible moments, I know I'm not Jesus Christ, and his temptations are not my temptations. I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread or want to be king over all the world. I certainly don't want to jump off any tall buildings. I'm afraid of heights. These are messianic temptations. They're not mine. So I've always had a little trouble identifying with this scene. But I think I finally figured it out. It's taken me 49 years, but I'm beginning to see this scene in a brand new way. You see, it's not Jesus' temptations that we're supposed to identify with. It's his response that we're supposed to connect with. You remember there are three temptations and there are three responses. All three responses have to do with remembering that it is God who is in charge and not us. In fact, all three responses are some form or variation of the first commandment, that there is no other God before me, worship no other God. Listen to Jesus' three responses to the devil, okay? First, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Second, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then third, worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. 
Now, Jesus' temptations in, in mine, and I suspect yours from time to time, is to forget all that. To forget that God is in charge. To forget the first commandment. Martin Luther once implored of us, just let God be God. That's the way we're supposed to live. Which means trusting that God's plan for us and for this world is more powerful than anything that would cancel it out. Our temptation is to put our trust in ourselves and in our own plans and believe that we're in charge of our lives. Therefore, if our plans are canceled, we freak out. We panic. It's like Peter. That's the source of the scene at Caesarea Philippi, another place we saw on our trip. Caesarea Philippi is in the very north of the country, in that, in that green, lush section that I was describing. It's the home of a Greek temple built on the side of this uh, really um, unusual but beautiful rocky hillside. And the temple there was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. Now, Pan is the god of the wild. He was known to be mischievous and dangerous and could incite chaos and hysteria in people. It's where the word panic comes from, or pandemic. It's here that Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you're the son of God. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Where you go, Peter, you got it. Awesome. Next scene, three verses later. Jesus is telling the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Wait, what? Huh? That's not part of Peter's plan. So what does he say now? He panics. He says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turns back to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, which is the same thing he told the devil at the temptation scene. The temptation is to forget that God's plan for this world and God's plan for my life is more powerful than anything that threatens to cancel it. Jesus is going to test that. That's what we'll look at during Holy Week. He'll go to the very heart of the enemy's camp in Jerusalem, knowing exactly what is going to happen to him, but he's trusting that God's plan is stronger than anything that could happen to him. So he doesn't panic. The temptation is to think that you're in charge, not God. Now, I preached two weeks ago that we have free will, and we do. But we've got to be smart enough to trust in God's plan for our life and not our own. We've got to make that choice. I think that's why Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? In fact, one translation of that petition reads, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, connecting it back to this story. Which means Jesus expected you and me to go through the same trials and tribulations that he did. That's why the petition says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's, that's not actually in the original Lord's Prayer. It's the conclusion of the petition. Lead us not into temptation, Deliver us from the evil one, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You see? I finally got it after all these years. These three words in the Lord's Prayer, why are they there? They aren't in the biblical record of Jesus teaching this prayer. 
They refer to the three things that the devil offered Jesus. The kingdoms of this world, the power to do whatever you want, and the glory that belongs to God. And all three things Jesus rejected because those three things belong to God alone. We pray the petition to remember that God is in charge and to have the courage to let God be God. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So while I used to think this story had nothing to say to me because I'm no Messiah, I I think it speaks to the most insidious temptation that I have, the one I call the big temptation. That is the temptation to try to take control, to try to be in charge. That's what the devil's offering Jesus. If I could only be in charge, if I could only control things like my future or even my present for that matter, Now, i got to be honest and say, my future is increasingly a matter of concern for me. I've got plans. I've stored up provisions. I've tried to take charge of my life. That's what the wise people tell you to do, right? Take charge of your life. And I've tried to do it. But I've been around long enough, been on enough hospital visits, buried enough people to know that if you think you're in charge of your life, You're wrong. You're being tempted. The temptation is to lead you away from where your security really lies. It doesn't lie in your plans, but in God's plan. We've got to be wise enough and faithful enough to trust and obey in all circumstances, at our strongest and at our weakest. Practice trusting in him now. So when temptation comes, you won't panic. It'll lead you through it. That's a promise. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.